Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is the Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, turns out the Canadian government says protesting isn't that bad after all, as long as you're protesting something they like. Also, the push for the four-day work week, plus Iran's dishonesty and duplicity when it comes to the pandemic. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome, everyone, to Canada's most irreverent talk show, another edition of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. Thank you very much for tuning in. Going to be talking later on in the show with Ali Safavi about the Iranian regime and how even when the coronavirus is dwindling elsewhere in the world, Iran is still seeing a death toll that is at around 50,000 now, uh, vastly different from the official tally, much like uh, China's figures. Also going to be talking in a little bit about a lighter story about how we might take uh, the best of the pandemic in adapting our working environments going forward. But I, I want to begin by, by really extremely extrapolating on just the absolute nonsense that is passing for public health advice in Canada. The latest comes from Dr. Theresa Tam, the chief public health advisor, the one uh, from whom Canadians are, are hearing how they're to live every day, the one from whom Justin Trudeau is taking his cues. Uh, you know the Prime Minister of Canada has said repeatedly that everything he's doing is just a, an exact uh, mirror image of what the public health officials are telling him they want. So Dr. Theresa Tam right now is the de facto Prime Minister. Now she's been telling us for months now to stay home, save lives. Don't go to the park. Don't go to the cottage. Don't do this. Don't do that. And by and large, a lot of Canadians have been listening. But this week we learned that apparently all of that scientific advice apparently doesn't mean all that much, depending on the political narratives that are at play. This was a question that she was asked about going to protests and whether people could safely go to Black Lives Matter protests. One thing that people may want to consider is that, of course, wearing a mask is important, but shouting and making really loud uh, sort of projections can potentially increase the risk. Um, and so, you know, I might want to um, choose other means of uh, showing or uh, messaging, uh, whether it's be signage or making noise using other instruments, for example, as just to consider that um, you know, shouting um, and, and that type of um, uh, behavior can uh, potentially project more droplets. <laughs> okay, so it's not stay home, save lives. It's not if you go there, you're going to kill grandma. It's not don't go because protests are mass gatherings where you can't contain a virus. It's, hmm, well, you know, wear a mask and uh, don't yell because if you yell, that's going to get your droplets. So use instruments. So so apparently all this time, if people wanted to go to the park and go to the beach and go to uh, anywhere that they wanted to be outside, all they had to do was bring a sign and protest a political cause. That was all they had to do this whole time because if you're not protesting it is uh, fatal and dangerous and how dare you but if you are protesting as long as you don't yell you're fine now by and large the people protesting weren't listening to that advice anyway they were yelling they are chanting but it's it's amazing to me that when you are protesting the lockdown itself well you can't do that 
You can't do that. How dare you go to Queen's Park and uh, protest just because you want a haircut and this and that, and that's dangerous and you're threatening the lives of others. But when you're protesting now, it's all fine. It's all well and good. It's all dandy and no one's going to be hurt by it. Yeah, it's just you exercising your civil rights and your civil liberties uh, to go out and protest. And I think it's shameful for many reasons, but particularly how brazen it is that the advice that was necessary a week ago now no longer applies. And, and this is how either you have to accept that either the science is wrong or they uh, were just not caring about it. And either one, I, I think, is a possibility. I would say that they've been over-exaggerating to justify their control, to justify that public order mentality. And now that there's something that conflicts with the narrative that a lot of these people on the left are trying to put forward, they don't care about upholding the rules anymore. They don't even care about pretending that everyone should be staying home. So I don't think this is going to end particularly well. I'm one of these people that believes, yes, uh, the lockdown is overzealous. Yes, we need to have a more nuanced approach. I also believe that the pandemic is real and that coronavirus is a real thing and it is infectious and, and could pose risk. So I wouldn't be surprised to see emerging from the demonstrations we've had just across Canada. Let's just look at Canada here uh, specifically, that there are going to be more outbreaks that emerge from that. Because, yeah, you see some people that are holding signs that are wearing their masks, but a lot of people that are just in close quarters, not really socially distancing, because now they know that you don't have to socially distance if you're uh, protesting a political cause that the left is on board with. That's the rule. If only we knew that. If only we knew that back in March uh, when everyone was uh, talking. So so now all these hair salons that everyone needs, myself included, uh, could reopen as long as they uh, start to, you know, putting some chant on for a protest. And by the way, I'm not even minimizing the protesting here because people, I think, have a right to do that. That's part of living in a free society, part of living in a free country. I am taking aim at the bureaucrats and the politicians and the political advisors because we have to say that the public health team in Canada is a political advisory team more than it's a public health team, that all of these people were just yanking our chain. They were just pulling our legs this whole time and hoping we'd play ball. So now it, it's it's baffling. Where is the condemnation? When people were going to the cottage, Doug Ford was condemning them. When people were spending time or wanting to spend time with their families, at first Justin Trudeau was condemning them. He was saying, no, 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 you've got you to stay home. You've got to talk to people on Zoom and all of that. So where's the condemnation? Where are the lawmakers telling these protesters right now, listen, I know you want to, I know it's hard, but you can't. It's wrong to do that. Where, where is that condemnation? The same condemnation that went to everyone else that was uh, uh, doing the protesting thing a couple of weeks ago at Queen's Park now, or Parliament Hill or other legislatures. Queen's Park is the one that comes to mind for me being in Ontario. But uh, the scorn of lawmakers is no longer applicable. So here's what I would like to see happen. I would like to see lawmakers either say, look, Apparently, we were, uh, you know, just a little bit overcautious and overzealous with the whole lockdown thing. Yeah, be careful, be mindful, but we're going to ease these restrictions. Or start taking the same approach to these people that they were a couple of months ago or a couple of weeks ago to everyone else. I don't necessarily like that, but at least it would be intellectually honest. At least it would be consistent. Because right now what's happening is there is a, an illegitimate 
narrative that's being peddled by the government, that uh, things are, are bad under certain circumstances, but not bad under other circumstances, that a church service is not okay, that a kid's birthday party is not okay, but a, a gathering or a looting or a rioting is okay. So that that's what's happening right now. That's the double talk. It's hard to keep track of where, where the government is going, but that is, is uh, how things are unfolding here. So if we are to accept this, which I don't think we should, and I don't think we have to, will be essentially telling government, yeah, we just do things because the government says so. And it would prove that a lot of people are approaching this in a pretty uncritical way, which may not seem like a big surprise, but it is a big problem because government right now is still trading off of its good grace. It's waning, but government is still trading off of its good grace by effectively telling people, listen, we're all in this together, but that narrative is gone. The we're all in this together narrative is gone. The stay home, save lives narrative is gone. The flatten the curve narrative is gone. And all of it ha has just been replaced by uh, we're just going to say something on one day and uh, hope you go along with it because that's all we've got. We're treading water. We're just figuring it out. And it becomes where everything is a part of the public health crisis, whether it has to do with it or not, whether it's rooted in science or not, whether it's rooted in even any fundamental basis of logic or not. And this is what's passing for leadership in this country. We've got to take a break. When we come back, more of The Andrew Lawton Show here on True North. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Life is looking a lot different now than it was four or five months ago. Zoom calls, uh, no pants, uh, work meetings because of the Zoom calls, Skype, phone, telecommuting, working from home, all of this stuff. And these things for a lot of people have been, I, I think, a blessing, albeit for many others, it's been a, a bit of a stressor, especially if you have kids running around or you work in a, a bit of a noisy uh, environment normally and you need that noise to focus or whatever the case is. Some people like it. Some people like the hustle and bustle. But there is a, a big question about what offices are going to look like once this is all over. Let's assume for a moment, knock on wood, that things are going to be over, or at least be accepted as being over. If you are someone who normally works in an office and you have been relegated to working from home, would you continue with that if you could? Other companies are taking this by the horns. Uh, Shopify, one example, has uh, large offices right now, but they're going to be shifting to uh, basically a, an almost entirely remote workforce. This is a, a Canadian tech company, so people will essentially not go back to the office, it sounds like. I know other companies are, are poking around, polling their employees. At True North, everyone's remote anyway. I don't even know if we have an office. If so, I've never been invited there. So uh, for me, anyway, I'm always working from home and, and I'll continue. So I I haven't gotten the novelty that a lot of people did, but there are talks right now about the way that we go forward with this. And, and one of them from a, a Fraser Institute report is whether we would adopt a four day work week. Now, this is something that theoretically could be adopted in an office as well. But when we talk about more flexible work, this is where uh, this discussion is coming from. And the study says if workers manage to up their productivity a little bit and keep at it, uh, you could have a shorter work week, which would be, for a lot of people, a, a great opportunity to have increased leisure time, which the report says contributes to a higher standard of living. So here's the part that I find interesting here. And I, I've talked about the four-day work week before. And a lot of the times it, it's structured as instead of working five 
eight-hour days. You work four 10-hour days. And and some people would take that. Other people wouldn't. I would love to do that because then you get a three-day weekend every week. So it's like every week is like uh, one of those holiday-long weekends. Uh, but, but the trade-off is that you have less time at home on your work days. If you live in a, a city like Toronto or Vancouver or Montreal and you spend a lot of time commuting, you spend hundreds of dollars a month on parking spots or perhaps even more, uh, then this is something that would be great because then it's less commuting time, you're at home more, less money that you're spending on gas and all of that stuff. But I guess the question is, will we decide to take some things that we've learned or had to embrace moving forward? And I think more flexible work is a huge one that we could all benefit from. I think a lot of people get stuck in this nine to five mindset, which is anti-productivity. I mean, not all jobs are the same. In some cases, let's say you're a receptionist, your job is to cover this desk and cover this phone for a period of time. So I don't know how much more flexibly you could do that. But if you work in a sector where you have to produce some sort of, of task, you have to do a task and that's your job. Uh, the nine to five thing is irrelevant. It actually disincentivizes productivity. It disincentivizes people from working more quickly. Imagine if you had a situation where here's all the stuff you need to get done in a day. And whenever you're finished, you get to go home. And obviously you don't want people to cut corners and, and just speed through things. But assuming that quality is there, it would be great for people because then you can say, okay, you know, if I'm, I'm smart and I'm quick and I'm uh, adaptable and I'm adept, then I can finish this all and, and be home by 2 p.m. or something like that. And the four-day work week is the same thing. If you can, you know, do all your stuff on, on Thursday, uh, then you don't need to come in Friday. Great, bonus, have fun. I shouldn't say this, but when I used to do a daily radio show, uh, there were, which was live, there were a couple of Fridays where, and it wasn't like without good reason. It was if I was going away, uh, I would where I would pre-record a show for Friday and just like hoped the high heavens that you know some giant breaking news thing didn't happen on Thursday. So uh, on Friday, actually, I one taste on Friday, I was in an Uber on the way to the airport. And uh, the driver had my show on, which was nice because, uh, you know, at least some per someone was listening to it that day. And I, I was on the way there and the voice came on and I the guy was like, oh, yeah, I know. I, I listen to this show all the time. And I was like, OK. And I was then I'm like having to change my real voice so he doesn't know it's me because uh, then it would just be weird because then the, the jig would be up and he'd know that it, that it wasn't live that day. So uh, the, the four day work week doesn't work in live radio necessarily, but uh, it can if you, you're really dedicated. But the interesting thing I, I find about this is that productivity has grown between 1961 and 2012. Productivity grew at 2%, but there's been a, a slowdown in productivity growth now. Uh, which means that Canadians can't maintain their standard of living while working fewer hours. So the report's charging here that you need to increase your productivity and then you can justify working fewer hours. But I actually think this kind of supports my point here that productivity by and large is going down because everyone is locked in this mindset that is discouraging productivity. Whereas if people aren't happy with their working environment, people aren't happy with their work itself in some cases, or if people just know that no matter what they do, they need to be there from this hour till that hour, there's no point in being quick. There's no point in, in being overly productive. So uh, we would look at this and see that, yeah... I, uh, it's a give and take. I mean, employers want to make sure that their employees are not just uh, buggering off early and, and not doing the real work. But I think that employers could also stand to benefit 
from being a lot more flexible with their approach to working arrangements. And I am curious if you've had any of these experiences, if your office would go back, because I, I realized that for employees, they'd say, oh yeah, I'd love to work from home. I realized the risk to employers because a lot of employers feel like they need to be on their employees to make sure they're doing stuff. And it's a lot harder to monitor your workforce remotely, which I, I think is a big issue that a lot of people are facing right now. We've got to take a quick break. When we come back, we'll talk about uh, global geopolitics and the duplicity and dishonesty of the Iranian regime. That's coming up next on The Andrew Lawton Show. You're tuned in to The Andrew Lawton Show. Welcome back to The Andrew Lawton Show. You know, all around the world, people are talking about the coronavirus pandemic, the COVID-19 pandemic, and the fact that the worst is behind us. People are talking about reopening the economy, getting back to normal as best as possible. Yet there's a, a story that hasn't really been told in the mainstream media here, and that's that in the country of Iran, the deaths continue to mount. A, a new report from the National Council of Resistance of Iran will today uh, suggest that uh, around 50,000 people, 50,000 people have lost their lives in Iran to COVID-19. Now that's horrific on the surface, but also even more so when you take into account how vastly different that number is from Iran's official tally, which is uh, just a, a fraction of that. want to speak about this with Ali Safavi, an official with the National Council of a Resistance of Iran, who joins me on the line now. Ali, thank you so much for coming on today. Great speaking with you. And thank you very much, Andrew, and thanks for having me on the show. Looking forward to it. Let's talk about the, the real issue here, I, I think, which is why is there such a gap between the official numbers of Iran and the numbers that your group, NCRI, has been able to come out with? Well, as you might imagine, of course, uh, uh, lies, deception, and cover-up are part of this regime's DNA. Uh, and, and the issue uh, is not only regarding the, the fatalities figure, but even as to when this uh, coronavirus is spread to Iran, the Iranian officials, uh, out of political expediency, uh, to ensure that there is a large participation in the uh, anniversary of, of their coming to power and also the sham uh, parliamentary elections, they did not inform the Iranian public about uh, the, the coronavirus uh, having spread to Iran. In fact, they delayed it for about a month, which of course resulted in, in many people being infected with it. And so for them, if, if they basically tell the Iranian public that the casualty figures is, is getting close to 50,000, that of course would have tremendous uh, internal backlash. It would also have uh, tremendous international backlash. In a sense, Iran probably would be the second or the third country with the number of fatalities. And so in this sense, they do this because, of course, they don't want the Iranian people to know the extent of their mismanagement, their incompetence, and, of course, uh, the fact that they have not allocated the kind of resources that they have uh, to uh, addressing uh, this uh, problem in, in the country. Now, as the name of your organization suggests, resistance, you are, are not representative of the Iranian regime, not an organ of the Iranian government. How does your organization get access to these figures if there is such, a, as you note, a, a dishonesty and, and duplicity coming from the regime and the figures that they make available? Well, you know that the uh, people who are basically dealing with the coronavirus on a daily basis, like 
the physicians, the medical staff, uh, the mortuaries, the, more, the cemeteries, those folks give the accurate numbers. But of course, the Iranian regime channels all of that information into official, uh, if you will, uh, channels. And in fact, even the governors in different provinces have been prohibited from giving any kind of figures concerning the virus whatsoever. In some cases, even when uh, governors have spoken and, and spoken about the fatalities, uh, they've been forced to retreat from their, their comments. And more than that, uh, the Iranian regime has made a crime uh, for anybody uh, giving any kind of figures outside of the official channels. And so our movement, given that it has a very vast network inside Iran, as has been the case with many other issues, such as the nuclear weapons programs, the regime's terrorism, whatnot, uh, has relied on those figures to uh, inform the public about the, the catastrophic the scale of the coronavirus the disaster inside Iran. In fact, we issued a very detailed report uh, about uh, a week ago, uh, which was based upon information from some 18 hospitals out of 138 hospitals in Tehran who accept coronavirus patients. And based on that, we determined that the number of fatalities in Tehran itself is at least 10,000, which is 3,000 more than the total casualty figure that the regime has announced uh, um, so far. And so in this sense, we're quite confident of, of the kind of information that we received. And incidentally, both Rouhani and other officials every day complain about uh, uh, facts and figures that are being broadcast, they say, by satellite televisions abroad, which of course means the resistance of satellite network, because we are the only one that has been given any information on the coronavirus inside Iran, aside from some few reports by news agencies and so forth. So in this sense, uh, we were trying to uh, prevent the regime from uh, hiding the facts uh, and the fact that it has really done nothing to address the crisis. Now, one other unfortunately tragic aspect of all of this is that because the mullahs are unwilling to allocate uh, the kind of money that is needed to address the people uh, who, who obviously have lost their jobs or cannot go to work. Uh, they basically have lifted the, the lockdown on, on, on going to work. And so as, as we speak, in fact, uh, the coronavirus, and as you addressed it in your opening statement, is, is spreading like wildfire in Iran. Just yesterday, uh, the number of people who had been infected uh, was 3,000, which is incredible. Everywhere else in the world, the number is coming down. The only country that is going up in Iran, many cities, in Khuzestan province, in Kermanshah, in Loristan, actually eight provinces, the regime itself has declared it to be red, uh, in, in a state of red uh, alert when it comes to the, uh, the spread of coronavirus. I know there are more than 80 million people that live in Iran, but when you're talking about a, a spread as a massive as the numbers that your organization has found and, and the casualty count that your organization has found, as I said earlier, nearly 50,000, it, it stands to reason that, that especially in Tehran, everyone would be seeing this. And is that true, that everyone who lives in, in Tehran is seeing this, they're seeing the evidence of it, they're seeing people they know get infected, people they, they know die? Because you'd think it would be very difficult, even with the, the grip that the regime has on, on the press, you'd think it would be very difficult to keep people just from seeing the effects of this in their own lives and in their own circles. Absolutely. In fact, 
you know, since the regime's figures and, and Rouhani going on television every day, that has become a laughing stock. And people are, you know, sarcastically uh, have made a mockery of what he says. In fact, his remarks and like officials in the health ministry is in um, dramatic contrast with the statements by medical sciences universities across the country, by anybody who's uh, like a lot of physicians who are dealing with the crisis. In fact, a, a few weeks ago, uh, dozens of uh, Iranian physicians dealing with this crisis wrote a letter to Rouhani and said the statistics you're giving is not the, the, the actual figure and that uh, you're not really doing anything to um, curb the spread of the virus uh, because you're forcing people to go back to work. So yes, Iranians are quite aware, I think even more so because they see their loved ones or their friends and their family and their co co-workers being infected and of course, unfortunately, a majority of them die because they don't get the necessary treatment uh, that they require. I know this was something that really came on my radar earlier on in, in the pandemic because Canada, as you know, and as certainly many of the people in your organization likely know, has a large population of Iranian Canadians, a lot of travel between the two, especially students and, and people in, in the healthcare field. And very early on, we had a, a lot of our cases in Canada that weren't coming from China, but they were coming from people that had recently traveled from Iran. And I know that other countries have seen this as well. So the inability or or unwillingness for the Iranian regime to acknowledge what was happening early on is really something that can be blamed directly for the spread in a lot of other countries, my own included, and, and I know a lot in the United States as well. Absolutely. You're absolutely correct. In fact, the head of the World Health Organization branch in Iraq blamed the Iranian regime for the spread of virus not only to Iraq, but to all of Iran's neighboring countries because as I said, while the virus had spread to Iran, perhaps in late December or early January, we know definitively that some people had contracted the virus as early as January 5th. Uh, Rouhani and other folks told the Iranians, we learned about it on the 19th of So during that time period, thousands of people traveled from Iran to countries in the region, in the Persian Gulf. Uh, also, thousands of them traveled to Europe. As you may know, the first case of coronavirus identified in New York City was a woman who traveled there from Iran. <laughs> and so, in, in reality, this disaster, I guess, uh, within Iran and outside of Iran, in many countries, needs to be blamed on the, the kind of cover-up that the regime engaged in. But again, as I said, remember the, the Ukrainian airliner shootdown? Many Iranian Canadians lost their lives. We still don't know what the details are. No. And the regime for four days, three days, four days said, oh, this was an accident. And then they said, oh, yes, it was a, a Revolutionary Guard missile that had hit the plane. So as I said, this regime is based upon lies and deception and, and cover-up. And that is how it has been able to maintain its uh, grip on power. You know, Khamenei and Khamenei, uh, has hundreds of billions of dollars worth of money under his own control. The Revolutionary Guard, the same. Uh, we have exposed them in the past uh, through webinars and reports, uh, these huge economic financial institutions that they control, and 10% of what they control would be suffice to address all these problems related to coronavirus in Iran. 
easily. But they are not spending any of this. Remember that one uh, uh, senior parliament uh, deputy of Iran, of the previous uh, parliament, because now there's a new parliament now, uh, previous senior figure, he said that they had spent $30 billion in Syria. You know how many people's lives could have been saved uh, with that money? But the priorities of this regime are different. In a sense, in every country, you have governments and the people battling the coronavirus. In Iran, you have the regime and the coronavirus against the people of Iran. And so it is the population that is suffering. But as you say, unfortunately, the scope of this tragedy is now uh, is not is, is not just about Iran. It's about the rest of the world and about the international community. And that is precisely why the president-elect of the National Council of Citizens, Mr. Rajabi, has repeatedly called on the international community to take a more proactive approach when it comes to uh, not only the coronavirus issue in Iran, but other aspects of human rights violations. You heard about this young woman being beheaded by her father uh, as part of an honor claim. You hear about uh, arrest of a young Iranians, two award-winning uh, Iranian students being arrested by the regime back on May 5th. Uh, because of their ties with, with the uh, main component of the NCRI, the Mujahideen Akhal. Yesterday, Ibrahim Raisi, the head of the judiciary, spoke at length about the 1988 massacre of tens of thousands of political prisoners. And you know, they just elected Mohammad Bazar Qalibab as the parliament speaker, who has a long record of, of killings and, and massacring of, uh, Iranians. And he, he brags about his role, about the suppression of the 1999 protests and other protests inside Iran, uh, and now he's become the head of the, the, uh, the legislature. And uh, Ibrahim Raisi, who's uh, by any measure a mass murderer, is the head of the, uh, the judiciary. I'm glad you mentioned the international community here, because I, I know that there's been a, a huge problem in that a lot of people around the world, myself included, have been able to point to the, the links between the World Health Organization and China, and, and really, I, I think, an unhealthy and, and very undemocratic deference that the WHO tends to have to China. The story that hasn't been told as much is the, the Iranian factor, and that's part of the reason I've been following this, and I wanted to have you on the show today. Do you think that the international community ha has failed the Iranian people by how it's handled the, the pandemic, either on a global scale or even just in the part of the world that we're talking about now? I couldn't agree with you more. I think, you know, the problem is all the news or reports you see from the mainstream media is that the sanctions are hampering the Iranian regime's efforts to address the coronavirus, that the people of Iran are suffering because of the sanctions. That is absolutely false. Uh, the fact is that the regime officials themselves acknowledge that they have all the money in the world to purchase medicines to address uh, the medical issues. Uh, recall that the uh, health minister himself, Rohani's health minister, Said Namaki, said that we had uh, spent, allocated $1.3 billion to purchase medicine. We don't know what happened to it. $4.8 billion was lost, uh, according to the government audit of the Iranian regime's budget under Rouhani. So where does all this money go? Who steals them? Uh, 
the daughter of a foreign minister uh, is now being charged nominally, I should say, for uh, holding a lot of medicine, engaging in price gouging, and uh, basically um, diverting the medicine that had come to Iran to the uh, Revolutionary Guard who sell the, the medicine in the open market 10 times the price. So you're absolutely correct that the, the international community has looked the other way, and uh, the mainstream media doesn't address this problem. Uh, it seems as though it's the outside world that is the villain, and not uh, the Muslims who have basically looted and fleeced Iran out of its natural resources. You know, Iran is a country where it's the second largest gas reserves in the world. It was the fourth largest exporter of oil in the world. Yet, 15 million Iranians go hungry every night. 25 million Iranians live in slums around major metropolitan areas. Right now, in, in uh, southwest uh, province of Khuzestan, the problem of water shortage has become tremendously acute. Uh, why is this? Because the Revolutionary Guards have built all these dams and they're diverting the water to their uh, uh, own uh, projects from uh, the, uh, the farmers. So a, a, it's a, a very important official of the regime on, on Iranian, uh, one of these websites of the regime the other day, who said, I have seen these luxury houses in northern Tehran that I have not seen anywhere else in the world. So you can see that there is this massive discrepancy, if you will, of um, uh, income distribution. The vast majority are poor, and very few are uh, basically uh, having all the wealth and spending it uh, to their own benefit. In a country where you see the uh, budget for the Revolutionary Guards and the security forces and the military, uh, roughly about $55 billion, and the budget for the health system, healthcare, medical care, only $60 billion, that tells you what the priorities of this regime are. And indeed, with Khamenei speaking a week ago before some uh, pro-regime students, he said, I want a, a, a government, a Hezbollahi government, uh, and my ideal president is somebody like uh, the eliminated uh, notorious revolutionary guard, Force Force Commander Qasem Soleimani. And that is why you see now the, the Speaker of the Parliament, uh, Mohammad Baghavaliba, a, a sort of a colleague and protege of Soleimani. And in fact, he said, I'm going to uh, follow in the footsteps of Soleimani and I'm going to avenge uh, his elimination. So this is really the problem. And naturally, the international community has not risen to its obligations and its standards when it comes to the issue of Iran. Just I guess as a closing question here, Ali, because when you're talking about these sorts of numbers, if the regime is trying to pretend it has everything under control and there's no problem, that means that the regime is not responding to the crisis. And I know that, as you note, they've prevented money from getting to actual support. They've turned away Doctors Without Borders because, yeah. uh, you know, the doctors uh, weren't apparently approved by the Iranian regime. And uh, they're trying to pretend that they don't need the help. So where does it go from here? Well, I think at the end of the day, and we've said this many, many times, Rajabi has said it time and again, that the ultimate solution to all of this problem is to overthrow this regime. And I think uh, the Iranian resistance uh, is hard at work to bring that about. We call that 
Uh, in November of 2019, uh, there were uh, anti-regime uh, protests uh, in more than 160 cities across the country in all 31 provinces. Uh, 1,500 people were massacred, uh, many of them young people shot in the head and in vital organs by the security forces. Ironically, after a seven-month delay, two days ago, the Interior Minister uh, Rahmani Fazli said, oh yeah, you know, the, um, we've maybe killed uh, some 225, and of course, of those, 20% were killed by non-standard weaponry, which is ridiculous, you know, I mean, there's hundreds of video clips of, of showing the security forces shooting people from rooftops, shooting them at close range uh, in the head and, and in the heart and whatnot. So I think what the Mullahs are very afraid of, quite frankly, is uh, another uprising uh, coming. And uh, uh, the uh, resistance units of, of the MEK have been quite active across the country every day. Uh, they uh, are engaging in acts of resistance, and the regime keeps talking about it day in and day out. Uh, as I told Drew Khamenei when he's speaking to uh, pro-regime students, the Basijis, they are actually, uh, last week, he said that, be careful that the MEK does not influence our young people. And as I said, the fact that even the elite Iranian students are attracted to the goals and ideals that the, the NCRI and the MEK advocate goes to show that change is on the way and certainly this regime will be overthrown. And uh, what, what, what is needed, I think, is some sort of uh, recognition that this regime is, is an uh, inhuman regime that has lost all legitimacy among its own people and that the Iranian people and opposition needs to be assisted to finally end this 40 years of dark rule that has brought nothing but death, destruction, uh, not only to the people of Iran, but also to the rest of the region. Ali Savavi, official with the National Council of Resistance of Iran, the Foreign Affairs Committee, joins me on the line now. Ali, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew, for giving me the opportunity and, and uh, uh, keep safe. I know I have talked about some of these issues on my show before. I know I've written columns about it, but I've, I've never actually had Ali on. So I thought it would be good to talk about that and, and really get through, I, I think, some of the big themes there that even as, as I mentioned at the beginning, the pandemic winds down, uh, the issues that are, are still very much there revealing just glaring holes in how the international community has turned a blind eye to uh, just these horrific dictatorships and, and autocratic regimes. So my thanks to Ali Safavi for coming on. And to all of you for tuning in, we've got to wrap things up. I am off next week, but we'll be back in a couple of weeks. And uh, if not for my show, lots of other stuff at tnc.news to keep you busy while I'm gone. We'll talk to you soon. Thank you, God bless, and good day, Canada. Thanks for listening to The Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.